If you guys want to open your Bibles, you can open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Okay. So this morning, as we begin chapter 3, we're going to be continuing this theme of the wisdom of God in comparison to the wisdom of man, which essentially is foolishness, right? But from man's perspective, they think we're foolish. That's, that's what the Bible's telling us. It's foolishness because God is out of the picture, right? So it's not that mankind are just a bunch of idiots, okay? No, they're image bearers of God. They're able to accomplish great and wonderful things, but their wisdom is foolishness without God in the picture, Okay? And yet for us, we stand here as children of God. God is completely in the picture, right? So two weeks ago, we went through the methods of Paul bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. And what we saw that these methods were different from the Greek culture that was around them. They cared so much about using high-sounding words and... That, that essentially exemplified the superior speech of certain people above maybe the rest of the normal world that just pretty much speaks in layman's terms, right? And Paul didn't do that. He just simply spoke the gospel clearly and simply with normal speech. And then he went on to remind them that apart from the spirit that was in him, and apart from the spirit who was working in those who preached to, which was them, the Corinthian church in the context, essentially nothing would get accomplished. Right? So nothing will get accomplished as far as spiritual good in this world void of God, the person, the work of the Holy Spirit working in the lives of His people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, let me just remind us, a, a refresher a couple of verses that we ended off with last week. Verse 8 in chapter 2 said, The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. And, and that moment he's talking about the present context of their generation right after Christ died. It says, for if they understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they knew what they were doing, that this man, Jesus Christ, truly was the Son of God, right? They would not have crucified Him. In verse 10 of chapter 2, it says, for to us, that is, the church, right? God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. So again, we know that it is the spirit that the spirit that has illumined our minds, made us born again, gave us the ability to understand heavenly things that the world cannot understand. And then he closes up chapter two and verses fourteen to sixteen with these words, says, For a natural man, remember the natural man is just the natural, unredeemed man that has not been born again by the Spirit. Okay? The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to Him. And He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. They are spiritually discerned or understood. You can't understand the Word of God. It's God's Word. It's heavenly. It's out of this world apart from His Spirit. Verse 16, For who has known the mind of the Lord that He will instruct him? That's a rhetorical question, right? No one knows the mind of... No created being knows the mind of the Lord in and of Himself. But then he closes out verse 16, but we have the mind of Christ. That is a wonderful blessing as the church of the living God to have the capacity to understand spiritual things because we have the Holy Spirit. We have a new nature. We are new creations 
in Christ Jesus. And now as we get into chapter 3, Paul is going to address the fact that even though they have the Spirit of Christ in them, the Corinthian church, right? Remember we said that they were a dysfunctional church. It was a, a real church of real believers. But they had a lot of things that they had to learn. They had to be corrected in a lot of things. Which is encouraging, right? Because that proves that not... I mean, you see it all the time. Not every Christian... You know, we have to be very careful. A lot of Christians want to judge and they'll look at someone that maybe may be a little immature, maybe they don't have the best understanding, or maybe they're just not in the right place right now, and we write them off as not even being saved. And we need to be very careful when we say that about another child of God. Okay? So, the Corinthians was a real church, and he had to correct them. Remember, we said that this letter is very corrective in nature. Alright? So, what he's saying is that even though they had the Spirit of Christ in them, because of their lack of maturity... And God has called us all to be mature. He has to address them as babies. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. So chapter 3, we're just going to do the first 8 verses. So I'll read it, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get started. Chapter 3, and it says this in verse 1. It says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, and not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, indeed, even now you are not able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Let's pray. Lord, this morning as we come here, Lord, we are acknowledging our our need for you, and even though we are redeemed, even though we are, we stand here as eyes opened, Lord God, to your wonderful truth that we've been, we've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, Lord God, we still need your help. We cannot understand your word apart from us relying on the spirit that is inside of us, Lord. So I pray again that you would do your wonderful work here this morning. I pray, Lord God, again, that me, Mike, would decrease, Lord God, and that you would increase. There's only room for one person to be magnified this morning, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, we pray that that would be the case this morning. So help us, build us up in the most holy faith. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Yes? Could I ask which translation that is? I'm reading it. That was a New American Standard. Okay. New American Standard, yeah. Okay. So let's look at this. I'm just going to read the first four, uh, four verses again. It says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food. For you were not yet able to receive it, and indeed, even now, you are not yet able. For you are still fleshly. 
For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? So we see here in the beginning of this chapter that Paul is addressing their immaturity as a church. And in verse 1, Paul is equating spiritual men in this context as mature men. Okay? And then last week we talked about some being further along in this process of sanctification. Not every believer is on the same level, right? And probably because of their obedience to the Lord or their surrenderedness to the Spirit, right? But not everyone is on the same level. Not everyone has, is on the same maturity level, right? So, Paul saying that they are spiritual because they are striving to walk in the Holy Spirit's strength and power. Those who are mature are striving to walk not in the strength of their own, which they have none, but in the power of God. So, the spiritual in context here, is in contrast with the fleshly, which equates with immaturity. That is, infants or babies in Christ Jesus. So, even though there is a sense in which fleshly refers to the unredeemed or unsaved, right? Scripture often talks about fleshly or the carnal person as being lost, right? But in the context here... It is talking about an immature believer. Someone who is fleshly is immature. All of us can relate to that. I can relate to that every day, if we really be, if I be honest, right? Anytime I operate according to my flesh, it's not good. It's not ugly. I, do, I am not a good representative of Christ. When Mike comes out, Mike is ugly. Mike is ungodly, right? And we don't want that. So immaturity stems from our flesh, which still has remaining sin. Okay? We're not taking this flesh with us. Right? We'll have a new body one day in heaven. Okay? This flesh has remaining sin. This mind is corrupted still even by the flesh. It has remaining sin as well. So we can't say that someone is acting mature in a faith when they are operating according to the flesh. And it can be the most seasoned believer. The one we can say like the Apostle Paul, which I'm going to get into right now in Romans chapter 7. It doesn't make a difference who it is and how far along you are in the faith. If we are acting according to the flesh, we are going to be sinful. Right? And that's not good because He saved us from our sins and He's called us to be much different. Okay? So the flesh will not ever produce any spiritual good. And that's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7. You know, he has that, that huge discourse where he's going back and forth about the battle that he is having. The, the, an apostle of the living God, right, is having the same battle that we can all relate to each and every day. Right? And he says this in Romans chapter 7 in verse 18. He says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. Now, if that verse ended there, that would leave us without any hope. Right? He says, I know that nothing good dwells in me. But then he qualifies that statement. He takes it further. He says, that is in my flesh. He's saying that for the willing is present in me. The desire to do the things of God is present in me because I am a new creation in Christ Jesus. He says, but the doing of the good is not. 
In other words, in his own strength, in his own power, right? He doesn't desire the things of God, and he has no ability to do the things of God. But he also has the Spirit of God that's in him. You know? He has the Spirit of God that is in him. And the Spirit wants something different. And he is a new creation in Christ Jesus. Every believer has two natures. Has two natures. Right? We deal with the new nature, and yet we still have the old nature. And during this season, when we're here on earth, this life, how many years God grants us, is going to be a constant battle against the flesh. So he's saying that nothing good, spiritually good, can never be performed by him in his natural self, his flesh. So he's saying again that as a man who is regenerated, born again, justified, he is declared righteous by God. His sins are covered. He'll never have to pay for any of his sin. He's been adopted into the family of God. God the Father is his Father. He can call him Father. And he's been sanctified, set apart for holy use by God, in particular the Apostle Paul, as an apostle, right? He still has no ability to do good in his natural state, his sinful flesh. And that's the same for you and I. We can't do anything. We can't live this Christian life on our own. Virtually impossible. We need to surrender to the Spirit's power. The very Spirit, who is more powerful and greater than our flesh, right? When your heart condemns, you know that He is greater than our heart, right? He is more powerful than our flesh. So we have to believe that. So, he is in a sense expressing his disappointment with the Corinthians because he wants so much to be able to speak to them in a certain way, but they can't handle it yet. Because of their own disobedience of being diligent and walking in the Spirit's power. So what does he say? Going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In verse 2. He says, I gave you milk to drink. Not solid food. For you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able. Now, keep in mind here. When Paul planted this church, right? He was there pastoring it for about a year and a half before he left. Right now he's writing this letter. It's been some time, right? So some time has gone and they have not matured the way they should be maturing. He's not expecting them to be perfect. He's not perfect. But they should be a lot more further along in the game. You think about, again, the, when God delivered the Israel out of uh, Egypt, right? And they're, they're in the wilderness for 40 years. You ever heard that phrase? Because they had to get Egypt out of them. In other words, they had to, they had to be cleansed and purified, even though they're God's chosen people. Okay? They needed to be purified from the wicked ways of the Egyptians, their own wicked ways, because all mankind is in the same boat. Right? So it's the same thing here with the Corinthian church. They were not progressing the way they should. So in the beginning, when he says, I gave you milk to drink, he had to speak to them in a certain way. That's the right thing to do, right? It would be foolish to get into the deeper things of God before the necessary things that first bring salvation to the saint. You know, think about it. We all have people in our lives maybe that don't know the Lord that we want to see come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, right? 
whether it's our own circles at home, same thing, maybe we're on, on our jobs. It'd be foolish if I'm sitting there talking to someone maybe on a job or something like that or whatever, and I start, I'm going to start, yeah, go read the book of Revelation in Ezekiel. And that's just foolish. To start speaking about things that are much more heavier than simply giving the milk, the pure milk, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Starting out like babies, which is essential. A baby needs his mother's milk to survive in the beginning before he gets on the solid food. But then after that, the beginning part of discipleship, even the beginning part of discipleship has to do still with the basics and understanding the very basics that brought salvation to us. So when Paul first came to them, his purpose was preaching these basic truths of the gospel, which saves, and it did, because this is a church that he's writing to. A church that is a body of believers who are saved. Right? His goal was to plant a church, and he did that. But once that church was made, and qualified leaders were in place, at this time, I believe Apollos was there, Right? They need to move on to maturity. Or maybe even Apollos left at this time. I'm not sure. Okay? So a church must first understand John 3.16. The, simple, the simplicity of those verses. Right? But it's never good to hear the same thing week after week after week after week. If you guys came here, we go to church every Sunday morning to be fed, to be taught the Word of God. And all we do is say the same things every single day, week after week after week. Well, how are you going to grow? There's a lot in this book, is there not? There's a lot to learn. And that's how we move on to maturity. Now, it doesn't just... It starts there with the knowledge. We know that knowledge puffs up, too. It can make you very arrogant when you know a lot. And the whole purpose of learning is so that we can now do, right? Do the things that we have learned, right? So, it was time for them to now move on to maturity. Maturity does equal conformity. Okay, the more mature we are, the more conformed we are into the image of Christ. That's why He saved us. And this church, like all believers, they had all the necessary ingredients to do it. One can even argue that, if we go back even further, let's take the apostles as a great example of this. One can argue that even the apostles themselves were in a state of immaturity for about three years when they were with Christ. Were they not? If you read the Gospels, right? Think of some of the immature things that came out of the apostles of Jesus Christ. Remember, the apostles had a unique ministry. There's no more apostles today. Someone calls them an apostle, they're a false teacher. Right? They were unique. This is our authority here as the church, right? We start with this, we end with this. This is God's holy word. When the apostles were on earth, they were this. They spoke the words of God. They were authoritative. Everything they said had the authority of Jesus. Right? But when they were with Jesus during His earthly ministry, they still were without understanding so often. Right? Yeah. To a degree, maturity, think of people... That they know the Bible, they know it well, they yep. talk about different uh, themes in the Bible and all that, but to a degree, immaturity can be just the lack of application. Absolutely, oh, definitely. You might, you might know the doctrine all the way through, but like I can see myself immature in certain areas because I know the truth and I've not applied it. So yeah. the fact that I know it doesn't make me mature. It's 
by not applying it, I, I, I'm still not growing. I, I would even say we're worse when we're in that state. You know, think about that for a second. If someone doesn't know something, you know, that doesn't mean they're not responsible. You know, you know, ignorance doesn't mean that you are innocent. Okay? But when we know something, you know, sometimes we have a tendency, let's just say, uh, you know, the beginning part of something is we have to admit maybe we're wrong on something. Let's just say, people say, oh, I can, you get so comfortable with admitting you're wrong on something, but then you don't do anything. It's almost like you're boasting in the fact that I can admit I'm wrong. But then you continue to do the same things. Well, now you're worse. Because you're acknowledging that you're wrong. You have that knowledge, as Gabe said, and you are still doing the things that you're doing. You're doubly guilty, you can say. Right? We don't want to be like that. So the whole purpose of knowledge, again, is so that we can now obey. Right? Trust and obey, there is no other way. Okay? Very important. So, going back to the apostles. For the, the time that they were with Christ, they were arguing about who was going to be the greatest. Remember? Mm-hmm. Jesus had to rebuke them. Mm-hmm. Even when Jesus spoke in parables, a lot of times they would go at him and say, Lord, I don't understand what you were saying. You know? They were without understanding for a time. The Gospel of John is unique from the other three Gospels. You can turn to John chapter 16 if you want. Chapter 16, yeah. So in the Gospel of John, the Lord's Supper, you have, only at the midpoint of the Bible, you're already at the Lord's Supper. And there's a lot of time, a lot of chapters devoted to that time uh, until His eventual crucifixion and resurrection of you know, what happened during that time with the Lord's Supper as He was ministering to His apostles, His disciples. And... Uh, after the Lord's Supper in chapter 13, there are several chapters of the Lord teaching and comforting His disciples. He was telling them that He was going to be leaving. Again, they were still a little bit without understanding, but of course, hearing that, they've been with their Lord for a little over three years, and their whole world is going to be changed. So the Lord had to really comfort them and prepare them for what they were going to do after his departure. They had an amazing work to do which could not be done in their own power. And look what he says here in John chapter 16, verse 12 to 15. It says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify Me, and He will take of Mine, and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are Mine. Therefore I said that He takes of Mine, and will disclose it to you. And you know the story. The Gospels, they were supposed to wait, right? They were supposed to wait for ten days, until the Spirit was to come on the day of Pentecost. Okay, that doesn't exist anymore, but at that season of life, Though they had, in a sense, the Holy Spirit in a different sense. It wasn't indwelt, we can say, at that moment. Okay, because, first of all, they were born-again believers. They understood Christ. They were saved. People, that doesn't happen. You can't call Christ Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So something already happened. They were regenerated already. But for that season, okay, the Holy Spirit didn't come until Jesus 
ascended, and, and we saw what happened. Think about Peter, okay, and his Sermon on the Mount. And think of Peter for the three years he was with Christ and his imperfections. And then he have his Sermon on the Mount speaking boldly the things of the Lord. And we, we, we saw what happened. God was building his church. 3,000 people got saved. Right? Because they had the indwelt Holy Spirit. So until they had the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, they couldn't bear the fullness of the things being said. They were often still left confused like I said, after Jesus taught, after the crowds left. But the Corinthians context, right, along with everyone else's, including ours, was different than the apostles. For us, and the same way as them, obviously the Spirit regenerates. We freely believe, and we are baptized with the Holy Spirit, which simply means that we are indwelt with it. Not like the Pentecostals teach, that's a separate thing. That's false. Okay? So then he says this, verse 3 and 4. For you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Jealousy and strife among the apostles during the time of Jesus' reign, weren't they not? Right? And are you not walking like mere men, unredeemed men? Are you who are saved and redeemed, are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, remember their sectarianism that they were having, I am of Paul, I am of of Apollos, I am of Peter, I am of the Lord. (coughs) This kind of arrogance was among the church. It was causing division. He says, are you not mere men? So essentially he is saying, connect the dots. I want you guys to connect the dots. Consider your ways. Look at what's going on right now. Your actions are not exemplary of a people born again by the Spirit. You should know better than this. This is just how worldly people act. And you guys are no longer worldly, but you're actually heavenly. You're His children. We are His children. You're children of the God of all creation. And then I love this in... Verse 5. He says, What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Now, if you guys are reading the New King James, it might say who. And it works, but it's actually not the right translation. I think almost every other translation says what. It says, What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. So here is why... Even the smallest of words makes a difference to help us understand. So rather than saying who, he is saying what. And it's the difference of the word T in the Greek and tis. And though they are persons, not things, right? They look at themselves. Paul looks at himself as an instrument. He looks at himself as a tool. In particular... Servants, which is actually the word diakonos, where we get our word deacon from, right? Servants of the Lord. So here he's an apostle, the highest authority that a human being can really be given. Doesn't even exist anymore as far as within his church, right? And he says, we're just instruments. You know, Paul and Apollos had great authority and were greatly gifted but they look at themselves like every good minister of the Lord should look at themselves with humility. Right? 
In other words, they didn't think more highly than themselves, but they thought soberly of themselves, knowing that whatever I have has nothing to do with me, but the sovereign God who gave me that ability. And just as servants are there to serve in whatever capacity that they serve in, so were Paul and Apollos and any other prominent servant of the Lord. All they are is servants, slaves, really, right, of the living God. And just as there are many different tasks for a job, just like there are different tools for a certain task for a job, right, it's the same thing with God's kingdom. You know, God talks about the body of Christ. Talks about if the whole body was an eye, where would a hearing be? Or if everyone was an ear, where would a seeing be? Right? The body has many parts. Not everyone in the body of Christ has the same spiritual gifts. We need each other. No, no, there should be no one high and lifted up thinking that they're so superior that without them, the whole church would crumble. No. It's God's church. He does everything. So he goes on to say this in verse 6. Speaking in language that they would understand, agricultural language, he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So Paul was the instrument in initially bringing the gospel to the Corinthians. He planted, right? And giving them their early discipleship. And then afterwards, Apollos came and taught them further. They both had a work that was equally important and equally vital. If we just take the analogy, right? You put yourself in someone who does agriculture. You can plant all you want. Let's say you have your own house, you like the garden. You can do such a great job, you can plant all the seeds and do all that wonderful stuff. But if you don't give it water, if it doesn't rain, nothing's going to happen. Likewise, you can be so good and you can water, you can do all that kind of stuff, but if you forgot to plant the seed, guess what? Nothing's going to happen. And ultimately, anyway, God is the one who's going to make the sun come out and give you the rain and do all that stuff. Anyways, you can do everything right and yet it's still in God's hands. How many times does someone do something exactly the way God wants them to do it, but yet God's plan was different? He might have something completely going the other direction. Think of how many times someone's a health nut and yet they die of a heart attack. And someone who drinks, smokes, this, that, they live to their 90. Right? Ultimately, you can't add a speck to your life. God's in control of everything. It says, but God caused the growth. We have our roles. We do what God has called us to do. And you're responsible to do what God has called you to do. That is it. Listen to, uh, to Spiro's Zodiacs on this. He says, the verbs pertaining to the work of Paul and Apollos are in the aorist tense. If you guys remember, the aorist tense always usually denotes past time. It's like taking a snapshot. It's something that was done in the past. Okay? It's the word euphetusa, he says, I planted during my stay with you. And epotesin, Apollos, watered during his stay with you. But God kept giving the increase or kept causing the growth. Then he says this, the last verb, euxenen, is is in the imperfect tense, which indicates constant growing. In other words, Paul is saying, God continues to do his work even when Apollos and I are no longer with you. In other words, it didn't all stand based on Paul and Apollos. They had their role, 
They did their function. The rest is in God's hands. It all stands in God's hands. So here's another important thing that we learn. A ministry is not dependent on any one person. Sometimes we think so. Especially if that person... doesn't mean that there's someone that can be very vital to a ministry. But it's not dependent on one person. If everyone is doing the right thing by being surrendered to the Holy Spirit, God will continue to build His church through His people. It's His church. He is going to do, He's going to get glorified. He will do all the work. So He says this in verse 7. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. So what does God mean when He says that these servants aren't anything? Is he saying that they are worthless? No, right? Paul is simply getting to the heart of the lesson. God wonderfully equips, and he equips those who he will put into his own service. This is a beautiful and gracious truth that we must recognize and embrace, that God is the one that equips people who had no ability in and of themselves. But if God was not in the picture... (coughs) And God doesn't do the necessary work in the person first. They are indeed useless and worthless to do any spiritual good. They do not have the capacity to do it. Right? All Paul's accomplishments. Just think of the Apostle Paul because this is a good example. I believe when he was talking to the Philippian church. All his accomplishments, knowing 613 precepts of the law, being someone who knew the Bible in and out, but yet then really didn't know it. Right? having a great teacher, great family, a Roman citizen, all that. All his accomplishments were useless if he didn't get knocked off his high horse literally and get saved. Right? They were useless. How about Apollos? He was a very eloquent man who also knew the scriptures. And until he was saved and corrected and taught about the things he knew more accurately, he was useless as well. As a matter of fact, think of how many gifted speakers there are in the world. Right? None of them can do any spiritual good because they're, they're void of the Spirit. Right? It can be very captivating when you see, hear someone who's a really good speaker. You know? Sometimes I get nervous if, I, if I'm, you know, I gotta sit in these stupid meetings at work and I can't stand it. Right? And you come across some people that really know their trade very well and they speak very articulate and fluent me everything's a thing that thing this thing you know but but when you see that it could be odd that guy sounds very interesting it's good it's it's almost like it's enjoyable to listen to when someone can conduct themselves very good but that's why we have to be very careful because almost every false teacher is like that can speak very eloquent it's very captivating tells you what you want to hear, that my flesh wants to hear. That's why the majority of the epistles in the New Testament are all about being weary and being aware of false teaching. It's going to be mixed with little nuggets of truth, but it's really error. Because truth cannot be mixed with anything. It is, it stands alone. So unless God does the work, we are useless in and of ourselves. So God, I think another, another yeah. point to that is they're, they're, they're nothing in a sense because if what they were saying wasn't actually real or true, God makes it real. Right? He makes it yeah. like that, the, the watering and the planting. 
well, if God didn't make the soil fertile, then you're doing that up for nothing. Yep. You see, it's in dead dirt. Yeah. And nothing's going to happen, but God made it living Amen. so that it can grow. Amen. So it's like, if, if what they're saying isn't true, and that's all on God, whether it's true or not, right? then, then who cares what they're saying? But yeah. the fact that it's real and, and, and God's gospel is true, then they're actually doing something. Amen. 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 It says that later in verse 14. Yep. He says that the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives. <coughs> on that foundation that was cultivated. Amen. Amen. All right, let's close with verse 8 because there's a lot, I think, in this verse here. <coughs> now, he who plants and he who waters are one, but each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. So the word used for one is the Greek word hen. And it isn't the, the form of the referred, referring to numerical value. We think of one as in a numerical value. That would be the Greek word heis. Very similar word too. Okay? Here, one hen is referring to being one in the same matter, one in the same essence, or one in the same quality. Right? John 10 verse 30, it's the same thing when Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And what he's talking about here, Jesus is saying, he's not saying that they are the same person, okay? Like some believe that that oneness type of theology, that, that God manifests himself three different ways. No, that's not how it is, okay? They are not the same person, but rather they are the same in essence, the same in deity. They are God. God is in three persons, yet they are one God, okay? So we could say that they are equal in regards to their quality or essence. But in the same way here, he who plants, in this case Paul, and he who waters, in this case Apollos, are one in the sense that they are equally fulfilling their God-appointed mandate and role given to them by God. Right? One is not more important than the other. They are two different people, but their essence is the same. One is not more human, more worthy than the other. Right? So their essence is the same, being two image bearers of God and two servants of Him. They each had their God-given job, so there was nothing that they can do or boast about because God was the one who equipped them for their particular role. And their role was, Paul was to plant Apollos was to water. It wasn't supposed to be any other way. That's how God has ordained it. And that's what needed to be done. And that's what did, that's what was done. But there's another sense of the meaning of them being one as well. There's two senses here. Them being one also implies that they were unified with the singular purpose of bringing glory to God. Now that's a, a general statement we say bringing glory to God. We can, we can say that about everything, but what does that actually look like? Well, in particular, if God appointed Paul to be the one who plants in this context, and Apollos to be the one who waters, right? Well, then we bring him glory when we obey him. In other words, I want you, Michael, to do this. I don't care what you think or you feel like you want to do. That is what you are to do. So, if I think I want to do something else and I think it's for God's glory, no, 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 no. I've just sinned. 
I am to do what God calls me to do. We are to do what God calls me to do. As a parent, I am required to be the man of God that God calls me to do, regardless of what my children do. They can grow up and be the biggest heathens. But my job is to be a godly husband. My job is to be a godly father and train them up in the admonition of the Lord. My job is when I go to work, is to work for the Lord. Care about the company, this or that. Mike wants to do something completely different. Right? We're required to do our job. So if we have have a singular purpose to bring glory to God, that doesn't happen. It's very simple. Trust and obey Him. That's how we bring glory to God. When two or more, no matter how big the number is on the more end, have the same motive and the same goal, there is the presence of oneness and the beauty that follows. And there's a flip side of that as well, is it not? In other words, the same logic stands true if there is oneness in doing evil. Right? If everyone's set on doing that, and guess what? It's going to accomplish something in the negative. For, for, 40, for 50 years, people got together and accomplished saying it's okay, government mandated to go murder children. Right? Because there was oneness there. Or at least on a majority end. Right? So, it's the same concept. Right? But then it says this also. So, he who plants and he who waters are one. The latter part of that verse says, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. So, the latter part of this verse says that each will receive his reward according to his own labor. I kind of just talked about this a little bit. God is, God is a fair and just God, is He not? Right? He is the essence of fairness and justice. His judgment always fits the crime. Right? His judgment always fits the crime. Justice is not punishment that exceeds the crime that was committed. That wouldn't be just. Or is the opposite. Would that be precedes? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? always fits the crime. So in the same way, rewards are given according to one's faithfulness. Right? Rewards are given to one's faithfulness. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, it says this, But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, and not in regard to another. For each one will bear his own load. I want to read that same verse again in the NLT, because I think it does a good job in really saying how it's supposed to be. It says, pay careful attention to your own work. In other words, don't worry about what other people are doing. Pay careful attention to your own work, for then you will get the satisfaction of a job well done, and you, win- and you won't need to compare yourself to anyone else. For we are each responsible for our own conduct. Now, we can, we can encourage others. We should encourage others to do the right thing and do this and do that. But ultimately, we're responsible for doing our own thing. If we're not comparing ourselves, think about that. If you have that mindset where you're just going to do the best of your ability and honor God with that, it doesn't make a difference really what the result was. You can have true personal satisfaction because you did what you were called to do. Right? And that's important. 
So to wrap this up, and it's just about that time, God's servants are first put in that place by God. Right? God's servants are God's servants. He appointed them. Already there's no boast except in Him. They are equipped by God. Where is the boasting? In Him. They are empowered by God. Where is the boasting? In Him. Right? They are required to be faithful. Think about the the unjust servants parable. In other words, this is what you're to do. If you do it, you don't even deserve to be praised. That was your calling to do it. You did what you're supposed to do. Right? They're required to be faithful. Their reward is based on their stewardship, their faithfulness to whatever they did. They are not responsible for other people's job, but they're responsible for their own job. And when everyone has this mindset within the body of Christ, there will be prosperity and success. Not superficially the way the world might say what prosperity and success is. But when everyone has that mindset, there will be prosperity and success within the body of Christ. And because God is the agent in everything, God alone is the only one left to be glorified. Therefore, as the the catechism says, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is our purpose. So as we're here on Sunday morning, let us glorify God and enjoy Him. In other words, enjoy the goodness of our salvation. Right? Think of how favored we are in this world. How good we have it. Let's enjoy it. And magnify Him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your amazing love. Lord, and just thinking what grace means. Giving us what we don't deserve. What mercy means, not getting what we deserve. And yet we have both of that in Christ Jesus. So Lord, I, of course I pray for those that don't understand that in our lives. So Lord, I pray that you would draw them to yourselves, that they'd be able to see the goodness, the salvation that is in you. For apart from you there is no hope. But Lord, we stand here as your children. You are our hope. And we know that hope is not a crossing your fingers hope, but it is confidence in the promises of God. What you said, we believe. It is a sure thing. So Lord, help us to keep that mindset now before we, as we go in and prepare ourselves to worship you again. As we sing theological and doctrinally rich songs that are elevating to you and magnify Christ. And as we get in your holy word, we, we magnify you. Because we know, we know we can understand it. Because we know we have your spirit, the very author of the words that we're going to be hearing as we go into service. So we thank you for that. Help us and watch over us in Jesus' name. Amen.